2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabella Breck, and today we'll be talking to Justin Gage about his new book, We Do Not Want the Gates Closed Between Us, Native Networks and the Spread of the Ghost Dance. Justin Gage, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here, and thanks for reading the book.
2: Justin, I wonder if you could kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, uh, first, I am uh, not a native. I am uh, from Arkansas. I was born and raised in Ozark, Arkansas, which I guess is more than just a TV show. It's an actual region and a play. I think the, the TV show is in Missouri, but um, I was in Ozark, Arkansas, very small town. Um, I went to school for my BA at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. I got my bachelor's in history and American studies. I got a minor in in anthropology. I went on to get my master's and my PhD, both also at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. Um, And now I am a visiting researcher at the University of Helsinki. I haven't been in Helsinki much the past year because of the pandemic. I'm still uh, stateside, um, not teaching currently, but I've, I've been teaching at the University of Arkansas as both a grad student and an instructor um, going on in eight years now. Wonderful. Thank you.
2: And how did you come to write, We Do Not Want the Gates Closed Between Us?
1: Well, it's a I think I say in my, in my book, my acknowledgments, that nobody wants to hear the history of the history book. Um, but here, here goes, I, I'm, when I was a, a, undergrad and a master's student, I was interested really mostly in ideas and how they're spread. Um, you know, how, how do they get from one place to the, to the next, especially I was interested in how it spreads in you know, frontier areas, religious ideas in particular as well. And so my master's thesis was about Cumberland Presbyterianism, which is really a uniquely American uh, um, denomination. It was, it was formed out of the Second Great Awakening. Um, it spread across what was then the frontier. And I studied that denomination coming into Arkansas, my home state. Um, and so when I was a PhD student, I wasn't really looking uh, to focus on Native American history or ideas but I was taking a seminar course, um, a research seminar course. Uh, Elliot West was teaching it. And each week we would read, uh, to start out with, we would read a different, every student would read a different book. And one 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 week I got a book about the ghost dance. And it was a book called, um, well, anyway. It was by Russell Thornton. It's called We Shall We Shall Live Again or something like that. Um, I apologize to, to, to Professor Thornton. Um, but I didn't really I wasn't really convinced with with, with his argument. Um, so I read this book and I was wondering, you know, how how did the ghost dance spread if if Native Americans were confined on reservations and, and they were living so far apart? Um, I, I, I read that in 1870. That, that that the ghost dance in 1870 was confined to the Great Basin it never spread east of the Rocky Mountains but in 1889 1890 there was another what we call a ghost dance movement different but similar but that movement 20 years later spread all you know all across across the West and it you know it, 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 it seemed to me that um, many histories even even recent general histories about Native Americans or the West. They explain the rapid spread of the 1889 ghost dance, something like, like this. They say Western Indians were made more susceptible to crazy ideas like the ghost dance, um, because they were living in, in more horrible conditions in 1890 than they were in 1870. And so it spread further because they needed more, you know, they need, they needed a savior. Um, so this was the explanation that was, that was given, by white people looking, looking at the dance in 1889, and 1890. That's how people living then explained it, that, that, um, Indians needed a savior. Um, one, uh, Russell Thornton, the respected scholars is a respected scholar and should be, but he, his book argued that he went so far to argue that, um, that tribes, the tribes who were experiencing the greatest demographic decline, he, he was studying demographics, population loss. He found that that the tribes who were losing the most people to disease, those were the ones that were more likely to participate in the ghost dance. Um, they actually hoped to physically revitalize their population uh, through resurrection. Um, so in, in his mind, the ghost dance was, was about resurrecting ghosts, your uh, ancestors. Um, so this wasn't really a satisfactory explanation for me. Um, it's really a, seems to be a cynical theory of religion, uh, religious belief, and it, and it sort of disparages native agency, uh, native intellectualism. Um, of course, conditions on Western reservations were horrible and they got even worse in the 1890s. And, and many natives wanted, they hoped for change, but... You ignore the agency of Indians with, you know, a def- deprivation theory. So I thought, you know, well, there are a few mentions here in, in James Mooney's study. James Mooney was a anthropologist uh, studying the dance just a few years after it happened, after it was happening, It is actually still happening. Um, and he, he comes up with this long study, which every ghost dance book, um, references James Mooney. Um, and he, he found a letter, a letter was shown to him, it wasn't supposed to be shown to him, but he, he, he got his hands on it. He, he transcribed it and he printed it in his, in his book or his study. And this shows that, that people were writing letters about the ghost dance, but it was really the only thing, uh, historians had their hands on but but it was suggested that educated Indians, most most particularly Indians educated at boarding schools, off reservation boarding schools, were helping spread the movement. So I thought that was interesting, and I also thought, well, the railroads, there there were there were folks riding on railroads to Nevada where the Ghost Dance was was started, and so I eventually you know found in my paper, um, which um, Dr. West. Uh, <laughs> encourage me to p- perhaps think about doing something else but he is you know it's really hard to find to find any primary sources on 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 you know Western Native American history but natives what I found was that natives were actually spreading the movement actively along networks that had been sustained and expanded even though they're confined on reservations they're they're doing this intentionally um, and so my dissertation which I wrote, uh, over the course of, of many years <laughs> um, I realized that this was an even bigger story. Um, so the, the ghost dance was 1889 1890 they're, they're passing along this information along along lines that to me didn't seem new. They, they didn't pop up just because the ghost dance was was going on. They were pre-existing so I realized that there was a massive amount of letters that were written by or for Native Americans in the 1870s, 1880s, early 1890s, that there were a ton of letters that historians didn't know about. Letters mostly sent to white people because white people um, were – the letters they're sending them to mostly that that are still preserved are preserved by government officials. And so you look in in certain places, in the the National Archives in particular, um, you have to look hard for them. Uh, in the regional archives, the, the reservation archives, but, but in the D.C. archives, there's hundreds of them, hundreds of letters that are being written. And to my knowledge at the time, nobody was really looking at this. Most historians still assume that Western Native Americans in the 1870s, 1880s were, were mostly still preliterate. And so that was a surprise. And then when I got into the reservation archives, um, the records left behind by the agents, at the reservations that there's this astonishing massive amount of movement off reservation trips, visits to other reservations that, that, that Indians were constantly asking for permission to leave and go visit people, um, other nations, tribal nations. And a lot of times they're doing it without asking for permission Agents were constantly dealing with this. And, um, you know, in, in the reservation archives, there's no, like, ledger of, of visits to and from uh, other reservations. So you have to go through and find passes or mentions uh, of, of visits. Um, and so I spent years looking through those in different archives, locate, national archive locations, uh, spent years looking for letters. And, and what I thought, what I found in my dissertation was that there was this network being built, intertribal network. Um, and that, what, that is what I believed, um, you know, made the ghost dance this rapid spread of the ghost dance possible.
2: Chapter one focuses on how citizens of various Western indigenous nations co-opted and appropriated the U.S. federal government's attempts at assimilation, In order to communicate their own anti-colonial aims, how do Indigenous peoples seize upon literacy, letter writing, and new forms of communication to turn federal assimilationist aims upside down?
1: Yeah, well, you know, first, written down communication was not foreign to Western natives Um, before and after European presence in the plains and in in the Southwest and the Basin. Native Americans used pictographic messages to convey complex information. Um, you know, there's even evidence of a few groups like the Plains Cree or, or the Ho-Chunks who created their own uh, phonologic written language, meaning symbols represented uh, consonants. Um, and so they were creating their own language, written language, without the involvement of white people. They weren't just being taught uh, these languages or these written languages, uh, scripts, from white people Uh, and of course nearly every western tribal nation every individual they're aware that that there are european ways of writing for generations um and so the idea of passing along written down knowledge was not new to most natives by you know the 1870s now once we get into the early reservation years um when the government is forcing u.s government is forcing natives onto reservations that's late 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, which is the, the focus of my study. Um, the U.S. government believed that education would be critical to the U.S. government's efforts to assimilate Indians. That is to make Indians more like white people. And for those who thought thought of themselves as, you know, the so-called friends of the Indians, um, assimilation would save, you know, the so-called Indian race. And so literacy was a big part of part of this process, particularly English language only literacy. Um, natives would use this skill in the ways that white policymakers imagined. They, you know, they they would use a skill to learn about Western civilization. They would read the Bible. They would they would you know they would they would learn about Christianity if they could read and write. They would become part of this national network of information. Um, They would use literacy to become more economically industrious, to help manage their farms, for instance. Um, So English English language literacy would make them less Indian, according to to white policymakers and educators. But many literate uh, native individuals, men, women, children, they use literacy instead to preserve their cultures and maintain some sovereignty. Most Indian leaders who were cautiously supportive of education, they hoped that literacy would be beneficial for their people. They could help you know, combat colonial power. Native leaders, Native leaders did not believe that their children would be completely changed by U.S. government schools. You know, they were, they were incredibly worried about many problems of the schools, um, many problems of the schools, and they knew the U.S. government wanted to change their children. But they, did, they, but they believed correctly, it turns out, that these ambitious plans of the white educators you know, to kill the Indian and, and, and within the Indian children, that that wasn't possible. That was an impossible uh, goal. So Native leaders correctly believed that literacy would give their people more knowledge of what they were up against, the treaties, the laws, the regulations, uh, court decisions, all that written down information that sustained U.S. colonialism that sustained the fraudulent activities of, of, nearby settlers, this could help them. Um, so literate Indians use literacy for their own purposes, often in, in direct opposition to assimilation. Hundreds of, of natives wrote to us government officials to question the power of, of Indian affairs, to remind them of treaty obligations, to criticize agents or reservations, employees, uh, they would write to make known poor conduct by agents, uh, mistreatment. They would write to, to, to white people about uh, the horrible conditions on the reservations, at schools. You know, the list goes on and on. Now, I discuss this at length in the book, but but I don't discuss it long enough, I don't think. And so that that will be a topic of my next in my next book. Um, writing natives using literacy to 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 to. To write to white people to try to maintain some sense of sovereignty. Now, now in the in, the, in this book, I'm largely focused on native to native letter writing. Um, so yeah.
2: In chapter two, we see these networks of communication expand, as you say, as indigenous peoples use the English language in order to establish new intertribal bonds, as well as repair those weakened or severed by the reservation system. Can you tell us a bit more about how and why citizens of various Western nations use letter writing to expand, repair, and solidify intertribal communication networks?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Natives, they use literacy very practically. Um, Many began to rely on letter writing to keep a connection with their, their kids who were you know, maybe they're off off reservation at, at boarding schools. Many hundreds were, and letters were a way they they could communicate. Um, others relied on letters to communicate back home if they were you know traveling uh, for uh, for work. A lot of Native Americans became more integrated into into the economies of the West during these years. So if people were living off reservation, writing back home. Uh, traveling. So it was clear that letters could be a powerful tool and of course that would carry over to letters to other people living at other reservations, Inter- inter-tribal uh, tool. Um, because of their forced confinement on reservations, the great distance between reservations, letters were a, a, a great tool. Um, tribes who had been pretty connected before reservation era were, um, they were now able to remain connected through letters. Um, You know, Northern and Southern Utes, for example, um, they didn't consider themselves to be the same tribe. Um, They shared a lot of kinship and culture. Um, And so Utes up in the reservation in Utah, they were riding with, uh, to with the uh, Southern Utes living down in the reservation, in Colorado. And so in the, you know, for instance, in the in the National Archives in Denver, you can you can read uh, something like 60 letters written um, between them uh, in the 1880s or early, early 1890s. Um, so similar bonds were maintained by you know the Southern and Northern Arapahos, who were divided by by largely colonialism, by the reservation system. Southern and Northern Cheyennes, Lakotas were were divided. By the reservation system, so nations that were divided could stay in touch. You also see tribal nations who use letters to establish new bonds, new connections. Uh, so written diplomacy was going on in the early reservation years. You know rivalries existed; some existed for generations between nations. Um, it's part as a part of life in the West. But but once you know white settlers arrive and they disrupt. Water and food sources for, for nations. You have even more competition, perhaps, uh, among among tribes. Now, once on reservations, many many tribes made efforts through letters to ease you know the tensions. Uh, one one example is, uh, Aricaras and Hadatsa's and Mandans at the Fort Fort Berthold Reservation, which is now at the North Dakota. They they wrote letters down to Lakotas at, at Standing Rock to try to ease tensions and it and it works and they begin to visit more often as a result. Now why was it important to make these connections besides uh, you know besides more peaceful relations? Um, they shared information that was valuable to both parties. They wrote to exchange advice, <clears throat>
3: uh,
1: exchange strategies in managing their changing worlds. Some wrote to urge recipients to pursue traditional ways of life. Um, others wrote to convince people to be on the so-called more progressive path. Um, so a lot of things they're writing about relevant to to us now, there were letters passed, <coughs> excuse me, there were letters passed along uh they were passing along information about, about surviving diseases. Um, there were letters written about warning about outbreaks, recommendation for vaccines, really important. Inner correspondence was regularly, regularly used as an anti-colonial weapon letters carried, uh, by the post postal service, right? The post office carried much of this anti-colonial information, uh, uh, these letters were circulated. One, ins- one, one example of this is, is Lakotas living, who were living on different agencies, different reservations. Um, they, re- they, they circulated letters about rejecting the Dawes, the Dawes bill, the Dawes Sioux bill. Uh, and a few, a few years later, they did this, do the same thing about that revised Dawes Sioux bill. Um, so Native leaders like Red Cloud, uh, you know, the Oglala leader at Pine Ridge, he wrote... A lot. He wrote to maintain uh, his influence, like many other leaders did, uh, to have their voices heard, not only their voice heard to other nations, but also to the US government. They wrote a lot um, to the US government.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: As you mentioned earlier, written word wasn't the only form of critical intertribal communication during the 1880s. As you show in Chapter 3, reservation boundaries hardly kept Indigenous leaders diplomats, family members, and others from exercising mobility. What implications does this have for intertribal politics as well as tribal nations' relationship to the increasingly restrictive settler state and its proponents?
1: Well, the the U.S. government did what it could to restrict movement outside reservation boundaries. There are plenty plenty of restrictions on intertribal visiting. Now, depending on the year... And where you were if you wanted to visit another tribe you had to ask your reservation reservation agent that this 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 government employee uh who was uh typically not not the greatest skilled person uh, uh, not the greatest experience dealing with native americans largely a political appointee and they and they and they they had this revolving door position they would come and go um you have to ask your agent. That agent was supposed to ask the agent where you wanted to go visit for permission as well. And then in some years, both of those agents were supposed to ask the commissioner of Indian affairs back in Washington, DC, if that visit could take place. And so there was this process. Um, If you didn't get permission, but you left the reservation anyway, Sometimes the Indian police would be ordered to go get you. Um, sometimes the army. But typically, you know, you would be punished for doing this. Sometimes that would be uh, a, a, some time in the guardhouse, re- reduction of, of rations. But more often than not, the agent would, would, really wouldn't even know you left. Um, I know that there were at least 1,200 trips made among 50 or so reservations in the West from 1880 to 1890. I've documented at least 1,200 trips between reservations. Um, and at the very least, 457 were made without permission. They, they were made uh, without Indians caring or rejecting to care about the agents giving them permission to do this. Now, it must have been much more than that. The, there's, there, you can't document something that, that you don't know about as an agent. And so there must have been many more visits that, that, that I could not find. And there must have been many, many more total trips than I can't document as well. The agents didn't leave a record of everything that was going on. And reservation records are really sporadic. There are <clears throat> some reservations that don't have records at all during this period. Now, of course, another thing I should mention is railroads. Railroads play a big, big role, especially for these trips that were being made across the Continental Divide. Something that seemed to happen more, Indians were going across the divide more often uh, because of the railroads than they were before the Reservation Era. And so there's a ton of implications for all this movement on intertribal politics. So imagine all the all the exchanges, both intellectual and material exchanges, that was going on on these visits. Um, just as letters made diplomatic progress, intertribal visits helped nations wrestle with these long-standing rivalries they had. Uh, tribes were incredibly diverse, incredibly different, even those living in the same regions. Um, there were many languages being spoken in the West, even several languages being spoken on single reservations in some cases. Um, and so tribes had, had different ways of thinking, different ways of living. And this intermingling that was really vital in Native life before the reservation era, this intermingling continued because Natives demanded you know, this, this right to, to travel to see other, other people. So diplomatically, by the end of the 1880s, you know almost all Western tribes were on agreeable terms, um, you know the the individual grudges not, notwithstanding. Now, for the settler state, for the, for the U.S. government um, and its people, all of this movement was a problem. Policymakers, people making decisions, making policy, uh, they believed in this nonsense racial theory that natives were inherently, you know, nomadic that. That's, that's how they were. They wanted to, to, to move about all the time. And if they were ever going to be like white people, that is if they're ever going to be sedentary farmers, that their mobility had to be reined in. they had to change. They had to be set in a place like a reservation where they could be controlled and changed. They had to be they also had to be this afterthought for white settlers. white settlers didn't want uh, you know to, to, to be around them. Um, to be near them. Uh, white settlers had the right, the right to do their own thing, but, but Natives didn't. Now, these settlers, um, the white settlers believed that Indians should be definitely kept on reservations, and, and large, a lot of this is, is, is racism. Um, this, this notion that non-whites and whites should be kept apart, um, that's common. Um, settlers were also afraid this is pretty important they're also afraid of uh, any intertribal interaction um, there's all these all these false reports in newspapers of different tribes conspiring together to create you know mischief the settlers living in the west they were they were afraid of intertribal interactions um, f- there are all these false reports in newspapers of different tribes conspiring to create mischief and violence. So there's this this pan-Indian phobia among settlers during the era. Now the inability of the Office of Indian Affairs to con- to, to to maintain their colonial strategy it demonstrates the power of of the colonized people. Uh, Indian agents couldn't they didn't have the resources. The manpower to keep natives on the reservations at all times. Some reservations were, you know, huge places. They uh, and as we know from recent times, it's a huge waste of resource, waste of resources to try to patrol huge, huge borders to, to limit movement. Agents also had to keep Native Americans to some extent content. Um, when natives complain that they wanted to visit more, when they're you know writing to the commission of Indian affairs, when they're writing to the president demanding freedom of movement agents had to contend with that and and keep peace on their reservations uh, you know remember in the 1880s we're only a few years away from from you know the serious con- <clears throat> conflict between the US army and 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 some tribal nations
2: yeah and by chapter 4 we see this remarkably sheer scope and strength of these interreservation communication networks and as you have just discussed now so does the federal government I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how federal officials flagged information about indigenous people's experiences under colonialism, as well as new religious developments across reservation boundaries. Why did these ideas spread and why did they loom so large in the minds of U.S. officials?
1: Well, the the U.S. government wanted to change Indians. And to do that, you had to control their beliefs. Um, So this is an important part of the book, looking at, at how the U.S. government went to great lengths to suppress the propagation and preservation of ideas that were important to you know, the colonized people of the West. The U.S. government hoped to control intertribal networks because they were spreading anti-colonial knowledge. Now, what does anti-colonial mean? Well, really anything that limited U.S. government control, anything that was considered subversive by the U.S. government, any ideas that were seen to be seen to be damaging to the reservation system, uh, Indian Affairs went to great lengths to surveil the people on the reservations, to be informed about you know what they're what they're thinking about, uh, even even censoring the mail was go- was going on. And so I look at a couple of, of vital categories of knowledge I call it uh, um, that the government wanted wanted to suppress. These these categories of knowledge were spread along intertribal networks. First, visiting and and also um, you know letter writing uh, it allowed tribal nations to share their experiences dealing with the U.S. government and devise strategies on how to resist U.S. government control. So this is advantageous knowledge, right? It it, it often gave natives advantages as they negotiated. U.S. government demands. They, they learn from the experiences of each other. One example of this comes from the Ponca Nation. Uh, in the late 1870s, they were being pressured by the U.S. government to move from their reservation in Nebraska, which was in their traditional homelands, you know, uh, what is now Nebraska, South Dakota, Iowa. Um, they're, they're being pressured to move from there on that reservation to a reservation in Indian territory down, down in what is now Oklahoma. Well, on a visit, some Poncas were on a visit with some Pawnees. The Pawnees were their former enemies, but now they're they're on friendly terms. Um, Pawnees told them, you know, to never ever voluntarily move to Indian territory. Um, the Pawnees were there; they hated it. Uh, they were dying in large numbers <clears throat> from disease. So the Poncas received this information from their former enemies, and they applied it to their negotiations with the U.S. government. They refused to move. They they said, no, we're not going to go to Indian Territory. Now, the the U.S. officials knew that the Pawnees towed the Poncas this, and they were pretty frustrated with that. Um, Eventually, the the Poncas were forced to to relocate, which led to this awful experience. Many died during the move, and many more died on the new reservation in Indian Territory. And it it led to the trial of Standing Bear, which is a famous famous and, and important trial. That you know actually examined the right of Indians to move around. Um, the, the, the trial also brought quite a bit of, of sympathy um, among non-Natives nationally to to the plight of of natives. Um, so anti-colonial knowledge it, it disrupts U.S. government plans and made the jobs of Indian agents more difficult. It brought what what agents called they called it demoralizing influences on the reservation, you know, ideas that were being spread ideas like, like farming wasn't such a good idea, you know, especially in a, in a desert Um, or that you shouldn't be forced, you know, you shouldn't be forced to send your children to school. That, that was a dangerous idea or the idea that, you know, you shouldn't, you should be, you should be able to, to, to buy and own a good rifle. The government, you know, didn't want those ideas to be, to be brought to the reservations. Um, And really importantly, Indian Affairs was afraid of intertribal movements towards sovereignty. Right, tribes working together for to fight for rights and justice, to plan to, to plan together, uh, so, you know, strengthen numbers to curb the reservation system. Now, the second category of knowledge that that the government, U.S. government, wanted to suppress was was religious religious ideas, religious practices, <clears throat> dancing, especially now. Dancing was the major motivation for large intertribal visits. Um, if there was a big party, and often these parties were in the hundreds, uh, you know, say a group uh, traveled from, from one reservation to another, the reason for that, uh, if it was a big party, they wanted to have a, a dance. Um, and you know, historians have done a good job at describing how Indian affairs attacked dancing in the West. But, but there's more to the story I found um, Indian affairs they also were attacking the spread of religious ideology um, you know dancing in the era was more than just a physical act um, there were there, there were they were expressions of religious belief and ideas and and notions that were associated with dancing were spread from tribe to tribe along these networks uh, For Indian affairs religious ideas, of of indigenous people were backwards and and uncivilized even sinful um, the point of the reservation was to end such ideas was to was to change natives make them christian um, and so those things were attacked but they couldn't suppress religion uh, they couldn't stop religious ideas ideas from spreading A nation's actually acquired new religious ideas and dances throughout the 1870s and 1880s. Uh, The Sundance, the Sundance was, you know, notoriously attacked in the 1880s and 1890s by the government. Um, But, but the Sundance still, it still spread to new places during those years. Uh, Utes incorporated uh, the Sundance thanks to their, their new connections with Plains nations. Um, Other dances like the Omaha, the Crow dance, those also spread and, and, and that, course, brings us, brings us to the ghost dance.
2: Yeah, and we get there by 1889 or 1890 or so, where we see this intellectual outburst of international solidarity and anti-colonial solutions across the indigenous West by way of these communication networks. All of these developments culminate in the ghost dance, which spreads with remarkable speed. And its spread, as you show us in chapter five, is anything but coincidental, why does information about the dance's possibility spread so far so quickly?
1: Well, this is an easy one. Um, it spread so far so quickly because it, it could. It, you know, it was understood by many of those that heard it, whether they believed it or not, that others should hear about it. It was important, and it was information that might impact all all natives in the country, um, including including the countries around us. Uh, It's a, it's a continental uh, movement. Um, So because there was already this network in place, this massive infrastructure that connected reservations from Nevada to Nebraska, uh, the set of religious ideas that we, we, we call that have been called the ghost dance. These ideas could be transmitted from tribe to tribe in a very short time. So throughout 1889, and into eighteen ninety, this information was spreading largely without the knowledge of of white America, before agents even understood it understood its importance. And it was spreading before agents tried to stop it. And so it it, it spread nearly completely um, before agents realize what's going on. Also important, most of the really the vast majority of Western natives that heard about the ghost dance movement, um, they didn't dance. They they did not participate in the ghost dance. Some believed to a certain extent, but didn't dance. Um, Others thought that it was important, but did not believe it. Others deeply believed in its promises, of course. Uh, There were also a lot of natives who were openly critical of the ghost dance. Um, But even, even those who did not believe it, even those who are critical of it, they're still part of this continental conversation about the movement, and it's, and it's controlled by Native Americans. Now, the dance, the, move, the movement itself, it, it meant many things to many different people. Um, what a lot of people don't understand, I think, is that there wasn't a ghost dance doctrine. right? It's not a, it's not a dogmatic religion. Uh, Native spiritual belief is different than Western traditions. There's not this this ghost dance Bible. So Native Americans, they they incorporated what they understood the message to be individually and into their own traditions and their own beliefs. Now, there was a, f- a fairly specific dance that a man named Wavoka or Jack Wilson, um, who was the intellectual origin of this 1889 ghost dance, um, he, there's this dance that he asks other people, other Indians to do. Uh, but the dance itself, it does change some, um, as it's incorporated by different tribes. Now, also the dance itself is, is only a piece of the movement There, you know, there, there were beliefs that were promoted by Wovoka and by different promoters of the dance. People like, like Sitting Bull, Sitting Bull, the Northern Arapaho, not, not the Lakota leader, um, City the northern Northern Arapaho was also a, a big proponent promoter of the dance. Um, they 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 had beliefs that were generally universal among all all who who believed and, and heard about the dance. Um, thing, the, the belief was that things would get better in a revolutionary way if if you were devoted to God or the Creator, things would get better. Now, Wavoka Wavoka's a uh, was a Paiute who, who live near the Walker River, River Reservation um, in western Nevada, far is far from the Great Plains. Um, now, Wovoka, this Paiute, he believed that if you danced in the way that was instructed by God, if you do it with devotion, that the world would change, that you would be closer to your ancestors, you could see them, that, that white people would not interfere with Native life, that they would disappear perhaps. Well, Voca also told listeners to work hard, uh, you know, to send your children to school, to go to church even. Um, so he taught native Americans and he believed that he was spo- supposed to, God told him that he was supposed to tell all native Americans this message that, that we needed, that they needed to meet, you know, the changing world with, the de- with determination, with, with, with uh, ethics even. Now, Fundamentally, you know, when, when relating all of the firsthand native interpretations of the movement, right, the, the, the interpretations, the oral histories, the, the letters, the, the commentaries, every all this primary documentation that, that, that I have and we have, um, there's no question that the ghost dance was rooted in the belief that you could, with the help of God or the great spirit, you could make the world better by bettering yourself And your people now really importantly for many believers and this is another you know really the essence of of the movement wavoka's promises um his promises would decolonize decolonize native life uh, meaning that the world would would be remade in a way that would restore indigenous autonomy right you know whites might not disappear from the world most natives didn't believe that they would disappear from the world, um, but colonial control would end, which was was not an idea the U.S. government wanted on reservations. Right, this is the, the, a sticking point here. Colonial, colonial, colonial control would end, uh, and this was an attractive idea for Native Americans. And this is something. This is one of the reasons why it was spread along along these networks.
2: Perhaps predictably, federal officials eventually do start cracking down on the dance's spread. And yet, the defenders of the dance continue to transcend reservation boundaries in order to preserve and protect their networks. Focusing in on Chapter Six, to what lengths does the federal government go to stop the spread of the Ghost Dance and its ideas? And in what ways do Indigenous communities respond?
1: Well, it's really uh, so. For those who don't know, that the the Ghost Dance really begins to 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 pour out of Wavoka's... Uh, mind and, and through his mouth to to other Paiutes, probably in late 1889, 18, sorry, late 1888, early 1889. But it wasn't until the summer of 1890, it wasn't really until then, when government, U.S. government agents finally began to understand what you know what this was about and and that it was seemingly out of their control they were worried that it was something in opposition to their authority uh, that it was unchristian that it was uncivilized It reminded indians of their old customs it was dangerous there were you know just a handful of agents who thought that it was really nothing of concern uh, a lot of them thought that at first um but as we get later and later into 1890 um, only a handful of, of, of agents didn't think this, that this was something to, to be concerned about, and so they're 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 really nervous. Again, this is important. They're really nervous about all the intertribal interaction, right? This this seemingly secret communications re- relayed among many different tribes that was thought to be dangerous. Natives were making visits to other reservations. Um, they're bringing with them news or information about the movement. They discuss it, they debate it, and of course, letter writing is doing the, doing the same thing. And so, Indian Affairs they began to instruct agents to investigate uh, the movement and really, really to boost surveillance. Um, they use spies and informants to infiltrate uh, networks on reservations. Uh, things we think. It seems crazy that they did this, but this was happening. They, they, they curbed visiting. They, they rejected many more visitation requests. Eventually, several reservations tried to shut down all movement altogether, especially the Lakota reservations. Um, agents began to describe this process as as quarantining, quarantining their reservations, uh, shut shut your reservation from others, right? That this this dance was a disease, and it and it could be contained. Now, some agents, like the agent uh, Charles Adams at the Kiowa uh, Comanche Wichita Reservation, and and James McLaughlin at the Standing Rock Reservation, the Lakota Reservation uh, up in up north, uh, they actually looked through the mail. They censored the mail that was coming into and leaving the reservation, you know, censoring the Ghost Dance information. Uh, at Standing Rock, um, I found a letter a group of men from Standing Rock. They, they had to leave the reservation, cross the Missouri river at night, the dead of night. And they traveled to the post office in Campbell County, South Dakota to mail this letter. this letter that was criticizing the Standing Rock agent, McLaughlin. They, 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 they had to do this in secret, uh, send this letter to the secretary of the interior. Um, and so That's one of the many ways natives responded to the suppression. They 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 did the opposite of what they were told to do. Um, Many argued, sometimes successfully, that their basic rights were being violated. Of course, right, their freedom of expression, their freedom of religion that Americans, white Americans, were enjoying, were under attack. They argued that they were praying. They were just praying to the same God. They were they they were praying just like white men to a to a God. Um, A lot of there are a lot of effective leaders and, and, and even folks that weren't leaders, um, um, speaking about this, writing about this big, big tree, who was a Kiowa leader, he was really effective at, at persuading agents that the movement was, was, was harmless, that it was just their way of praying. Um, and so many believers, they just simply ignored U S government authority. Um, like they had been for a while they you know they traveled to other reservations sometimes really far they there were groups of people who were leaving their reservation in Indian territory not telling their agent um, getting on a train and going to Nevada you know thousands of miles away um, sometimes they would just lie to the agent tell them that they're going to visit friends and they would get permission and they would just they would go and just investigate you know the, the movement um, now a lot of a lot of believers, they, they, even when they were told not to, they, they danced. They danced openly. When that was eventually threatened by the Indian police or eventually the army, uh, eventually they, they decided to dance in seclusion.
2: Chapter seven places the Wounded Knee massacre in continental context, within which the Ghost Dance specifically and intertribal indigenous aims broadly are misunderstood and misconstrued among non-Native observers and readers. The same goes for many Indigenous peoples who remained critical of the movement in its larger meetings at the same time. Can you tell us more about the conflicting misunderstandings of the dance and how these ideas violently convene at Wounded Knee in the winter of
1: 1890? Yeah. um, Whites tried to stop the spread of the movement by controlling the flow of information, um, but they never really understood the ideas that Native Americans were communicating. Um, natives were really successful at telling other natives about the Ghost Dance, but they weren't successful, um, even though they tried plenty. They were not successful trying to explain this to white people. What you know, what what's going on here? And so Native Americans used literacy not only to spread the movement, but also to make a make sense of the movement. Uh, Make sense of the movement among each, among one another as a community, um, and with white people. Natives defended the movement in letters to whites, letters to to newspapers, hoping to make clear that this was a peaceful and perfectly reasonable religious movement. White people thought this was a craze. That um, when you look at newspapers, you see, uh, the ghost dance craze, the Indian craze, uh, that's, that's just as common. The Indian craze was just as common as, 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 uh, headlines that say ghost dance. Um, and so they argued that this wasn't a craze. Um, so they, Native Americans had to combat tons of misinformation, especially false newspaper reports. Native Americans were, were reading, uh, newspapers. Um, there's a ton of bad, uh, Journalism that's exploiting the situation, you know, for for dollars here. Um, There are also plenty of native critics of the dance, and and Native Americans were critical of the movement for a variety of reasons. Some were eventually worried about what was going on at the Lakota reservations, that the dance there might lead to violence. Others, uh, they just thought that Wovoka, that Jack Wilson, um, who many Many natives believed was a messiah. Jack Wilson never, Navoca never told white people that he claimed to be a messiah, the messiah. But there were a lot of, a lot of natives who believed in the movement, thought he was, or at least a disciple of of, of, of the of the of a messiah. Um, um, so some Native Americans, well, actually many Native Americans, traveled to Nevada across the plains, across the, the continental divide to investigate. Um, this, you know, Native Americans weren't naive, even though whites pictured them this way. They, they wanted to find the truth. And there were some investigators <clears throat> who came to the conclusion that Wovoka was a fraud. Um, that he wasn't who he thought he was, who he thought he was, who he said he was. um, and, and that this does, does impact the movement on on a lot of reservations most whites they believed what they came to believe most whites came to believe was that the ghost dance that the ghost dance prophesized the, the, the destruction of of white people the white race and that was a concern to them <clears throat> um, a lot of white people uh, you know they they suppose well if they're well, they didn't suppose. They said their prophecy will not come true. There won't be this this revolutionary change in in uh, in the world. And when that happens, a lot of whites thought, well, well, Native Americans will will try to make that change themselves. They will rise up. There'll be this mass uprising in the West. And it scared people. It scared it scared white settlers around reservations. But but the Ghost Dance wasn't violent. The the the, the movement. Wasn't violent. It was, it was intellectually militant, intellectually militant for sure. Um, but Wavoka or any prominent leaders of the movement, they did not recommend going to war against whites. In fact, Wavoka was teaching the opposite to be absolutely peaceful. Um, there were, you know, just a few newspaper reports that, that mentioned this, but most reported that there was going to be this inevitable uh, Indian uprising in the West. Now, how does this, this misunderstanding misunderstandings convene at, at Wounded Knee? Well, there's a lot. I mean, it's complicated. There's books written about this. Um, there's a number of complicated factors, but really simply, the U.S. government became frustrated by their lack of control. Um, they couldn't control it. They that scared them. Agents, officials, especially those on the on the Lakota reservations. Um, that's that's where the wound, wounded knee massacre occurs. Um, they did not try to understand the movement. They accepted misinformation about it. Um, they were afraid of it. At least uh, some agents were, especially the new agent at Pine Ridge. Um, they didn't see any, see it as anything but a savage practice. It wasn't it, wa- it was it wasn't a reasonable thing in their minds. People should be believing, and they couldn't get past that. Um, now eventual murder, the massacre at Wounded Knee. Um, again, there there are good books uh, written about about that. Um, my book doesn't go into great detail about about that that massacre itself.
2: The military's mass murder of Lakota dancers didn't kill the Ghost Dance. Nor did it dismantle communication networks that indigenous communities had forged in the face of increasingly hostile attempts by the United States to silence, restrict, and erase them. Instead, in practice and debate, the dance lives on through the 1890s, its life sustained by the mechanisms and networks of communication that remained a thorn in the side of the United States for some time after what does the continued life and debate over the ghost dance through the 1890s tell us about Western indigenous communication, mobility, resistance, and intellectual history at the end of a tumultuous 19th century?
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's really important to know that Wounded Knee was not was not the end of the ghost dance. Um, even on the Lakota reservations, it wasn't the end of the movement. Um Despite the threats, uh, you know, from settlers, um, from the U.S. government, Native Americans kept seeking information. They kept, many kept dancing, um, but agents did, after Wounded Knee, which happens in late 1890, the end of the year 1890, in 1891 and onward, agents did ramp up their efforts to stop the transmission of this information among among nations, <clears throat> among individuals, um, believing that their Interactions was a threat to to government authority. Agents were really determined to eliminate movement um, of suspected ghost dancers. Um, They used new tactics, tougher tactics sometimes to limit visiting, to limit letter writing. Um, Some natives, even, you know, a lot of natives believed after Wounded Knee that, that the dance was, was dangerous. It, 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 uh, it could cause problems in their in their daily lives, and and some natives wrote about too and and amongst themselves about the government doing more to stop it. Um, but the ghost dance persists into the 1890s because of inter tribal interaction. Um, they're not going to stop talking about it. Um, many aren't going to stop believing it, and because of the many many people who challenged U.S. colonial authority. Refusing to give up their freedoms of speech and religion and mobility, um, A- Indian agents were also given this this task of policing the beliefs of colonized people, which was impossible. Not only did agents not understand Native American beliefs, they they could do little to prevent Indians from thinking about and discussing those ideas collectively. So, you know, what does this say about the relationship of power between the government? and tribal nations in the West in this period, the late 19th century. Well, despite colonizations, colonization, it's clear that Native Americans were not powerless, in part because they were able to control their avenues of exchange. They this these strong connections that were created among these distant nations, even among once bitter enemies, um, the nations shared information that they thought could be mutually beneficial. And so if, you know, if, if the reservation system was actually working, um, this grand scheme they had here, uh, groups, you know, like the Crows or the, the Lakotas or the Kiowas, Southern Cheyennes, they wouldn't have been able to communicate things like the ghost dance or the, 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 the sun dance. Um, they couldn't, they wouldn't have been able to, to, to try to overturn or, or, or uh, dismiss the Dolls, the Dolls Act. Um, but Native men and women remained mobile, and they exchanged ideas and information, and that gave, gave them control, additional control at least, over their own lives. And so the book really, I think, makes clear that intertribal inner interaction, communication that's going on, um, in itself, it, this is an act of decolonization because tribes were interacting in the ways that they that they wanted to. Not in the ways that the government could control. So these extraordinarily diverse people, um, and, and I must mention that, that this book covers uh, dozens of different uh, tribal nations. Um, I'm not. I, I try not to lump them all, of course, and, and as one peoples. They, they're it's the opposite of that. Um, but these extraordinarily diverse people, they face a common challenge. And they could discuss the circumstances that tied them together because of, of these networks.
2: Well, Justin, we've taken up a lot of your time today. But before we wrap up, I just have one last question for you. What are you working on now?
1: Well, uh, I mentioned before that I um, am working on, slowly, um, working on a second book called Riding to Resist uh, about... Uh, the, the hundreds of folks who were writing to the U.S. government, to white allies, to newspapers, um, writing to to combat uh, US, the U.S. colonial system, the, the reservation system, um, to gain some sort of a, a sense of sovereign, sovereignty of their lives through, through literacy. Um, I'm also working now as a visiting researcher at the University of of Helsinki. I'm working on a project um, that's called the Humana Project. It's funded by a a big European grant. The Europeans have a ton of of money for the humanities. Um, um, There's this uh, foundation called the Kona Foundation in in Finland, and I'm a part of this project that is looking at network analysis, um, using network analysis in history um, to observe to describe you know to, to demonstrate uh, ties between people and so'm I'm, I'm working on that uh, specifically with my my work uh, particularly the, the lakotas but also we're doing a project on uh, sugar Island sugar island in in Michigan and and near right near Marie Michigan um, that island is unique because um, it's slightly isolated Um, for, for many years you had to take a, you know, a ferry to get there, but a lot of Finnish immigrants found their way to this Island and became a part of that, that, that Island community. And what's unique about the Island is of course, all that area is, is the, the homelands of, of a lot of uh, native peoples. Um, Ojibwe's, are still there. There's, there's a, the Sault Ste. Marie tribe. And Finnish people made their way to the island. They were living amongst these Ojibwe and other white settlers. And we're using the software to, you know, to describe what was going on.
2: Well, Justin, those both sound like uh, really important projects. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care.
1: You too. Thank you.